Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. It's finally fall, right? Finally, we're getting there. I blame Starbucks for why we think that like the, it's been hotter longer. They released pumpkin spice like a month early this year. I think it threw everyone off. That's my theory, at least, and I'm going to stick to it. But it's great to see everyone this morning. We're in our final week of our lessons in the chaos series. It's been a great series as we've, as we've uh, followed David along, kind of his journey. And this morning, we're going to talk about redefining success. And in addition to this word success being really hard to say when you're speaking in public, it's a really interesting word, right? Like, how do we define success? So I was curious to know from you guys, you could just shout out words that you think of when it comes to this word success. Happiness. Money. Power. Power. Thanks, Michael. I like your haircut. <laughs> Anybody else? Health, yes, one more. Or not, that's okay. <laughs> all right, so this word success, those are all great answers. And I was thinking about this word, and the question I came up with is, when it comes to this is, why is it human nature to count success by counting heads or a head count? I'll, t- I'll tell you what I mean. When you think about presidents who have been successful, there's a couple of things that they're usually kind of identified by as, as being successful. One is like how many people showed up to their inauguration, right, to, to, to how big is that crowd to see them get sworn in as the president. And then secondly is their approval rating. Like how many people actually think that they're doing a good job. And when you look at musicians, right, they're judged by how many people come to their concerts. Actors are the same way. If you showed up to a Broadway show and there's like you're the only one in there, the show's probably not doing very good, is it? It's in our nature to equate success with a head count. After all, if we're doing something well, if we're doing it right, then it seems like a fair point to think that people would actually show up to see you do it, right? And when we don't attract lots of people, we kind of get discouraged, don't we? When we don't attract a lot of people, we get discouraged. And some of us have kind of developed this internal, like, theology in our hearts that equates the will of God with prosperity and popularity of our actions. So how much people like what we do tells us how much, how much good favor we have with God. Now, hopefully, can, we can use this as a bit of a foundation, kind of a launching point, that we all can kind of agree and get on board with the understanding that this headcount kind of philosophy, it's not necessarily a reliable measure of success. Because if you look back through history, you can see all kinds of people that had big headcounts, right, had lots of people following them. But when you look at them, or God would look at them, they, they, nobody would actually say, like, yeah, that was a successful person. You know, you look at people like Adolf Hitler, who had millions of people following him. He was a great public speaker. For all intents and purposes, by definition, he was a good leader, a great leader. But nobody would look look at him and say, yeah, that guy was doing doing things right. Right? This, people like him, they show us that head counts are actually a really dangerous measure for success. Now, last week, Pastor Sean talked to us about what we should do when dreams die. It was a really awesome message, and and I think where we landed is that we should hold tight to God when we feel like everything around us, our hopes and our dreams, they're dying. And as we move through today's message and talk about God's definition for success, I'd invite you to entertain the thought that perhaps the reason that we might think that everything around us is crumbling and that our dreams are dying is that we aren't defining success in the same way that God defines success. Our measurement of success might line up more with what the world tells us than what God has to say to us in the Bible. 
And this morning we're going to wrap up our study of this awesome uh, sermon series of, of David with a powerful message about how God views success and how dangerous viewing God's success, or viewing success through the lens of the size of our stage or how many people are following us, the number of people that are, that are uh, thinking that we're doing a good job, how dangerous that can be. Before we get to that, I just want to take a moment and just, I, I think you guys are kind of on board with me here. This sermon series has been really awesome. Like, I, th- I think that it's been such a blessing to sit through this series because I love David's story. I love the ups and downs and how I can relate to that, that the, how, how he went through all of that. It's apparent to me as I hear people talk about him, as I read about him, that he was just a guy, right? He was a, just a guy that God chose to use. He was a typical guy with shortcomings and insecurities and all kinds of other stuff that he had to constantly bring to God, bring before God. But in spite of that, God was able to use him in some pretty amazing ways. The story of David, with all of its ups and downs and highs and lows, it should give us hope, right? It should give us hope as people that, they can kind of identify with that, that we can be successful in God's eyes. And today we're going to see exactly what that looks like. We're going to jump into a story in First Chronicles 21. It's a story about David after he had been the king of Israel for a significant period of time. He had won a lot of wars. He had def- he de- defeated his enemy, arch enemies, the Philistines. And, and at last, the nation of Israel had found some success. They were the big kids on the block. They had, they had some military superiority. They had uh, success, economic prosperity, liberty, all these things that comes with the, the leadership that David had provided with God guiding him. But because of that success and the prosperity that they had, David kind of gets an idea in, here in 1 Chronicles 21, and he does this thing. He orders, orders a census be taken. He wants a count of every able-bodied man that can, that can swing a sword, basically. They can be a soldier. And it wasn't enough, the reason that he did this, because it wasn't enough for David and the nation of Israel to have prosperity. That wasn't enough for him. David needed to count heads. He needed to know how many people he was leading, see how prosperous the nation really was, and then once he found that out, probably bask in it a little bit. And I get this kind of picture of David here, almost like, like a shady businessman, right? He makes the, probably the biggest deal of his life, and it's not enough for him just to have that success. He has to have the payment in like a briefcase full of money so he can count it out in front of all of his friends, right, and show how successful he is. But so David makes this command, and he has people all around him telling him it's a bad idea. His, his most trusted general, his name's jo- uh, Joab. He's the person that David identifies and says, go, do this census thing. And Joab knows it's a bad idea. He's saying, David, don't do that. And it's one of these moments, like a lot of us probably have experienced, where the person in charge is making a horrible decision, and everyone around him knows that's a bad idea, but we push forward anyway. Because nobody actually has any idea how to tell the person it's a bad idea, because like, they're in charge, and it's their idea. right? So how do you have that conversation? And that puts me on a little bit of a rabbit trail, if you bear with me for a second. And that is, if you're ever in a position of a leadership, which, which a lot of us will find ourselves in at some point in time, don't ever be afraid to tell your team that it's okay to disagree with you. Don't ever be afraid to tell your team, like, it's okay to have a different opinion. We can have that conversation. Like, that's a good thing. And if we don't do that, that's how you get to where David is here, where everyone around you knows that you're making an awful decision but nobody feels qualified enough to actually have the conversation with you in a way that might make you change your mind. And this is where David finds himself, in a place where he's not listening to Joab, where he insists 
on following through this with his census because he wanted to understand success so badly that he had that he had to know how much his kingdom had grown with him as king. And honestly, he's not doing anything that we all probably wouldn't want to do. David wants that that moment where he can be lined up with other kings of his day and people can look at him and say, there's David. Look how successful he is. Look at how big the nation of Israel is. Look at what they've done under his leadership. And we sometimes want that moment too, right? We want lined up with our peers, with our friends, with our family, the people that know us, and we want to say, hey, look, there's Sean. Look at how successful he is. Look at how awesome his car is, how big his house is, how awesome his salary is. None of that's true. But we all want that moment, don't we? We all want that moment. And we get mixed up in what all of that means in terms of how other people see us. We get so wrapped up in thinking about the importance of what other people think about us that we lose sight of the fact that all that stuff that we spend so much time and energy on, it makes no impact to God. It doesn't make any difference with how God sees us. But David's going to follow through with this, and he's going to get his answer in 1 Chronicles 21, 5 and 6. It says, in all Israel, there are 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not count Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. It was repulsive. Joab didn't want to do it. And he gives him this number, right? But it's not accurate. He didn't do this with all of his heart. It says he skips Levi and Benjamin. That's not just like two guys, right? That's an entire tri- two entire tribes in the nation of Israel. Thousands of people, he just says, I'm not going to do that because this is an awful command that I've been given by my king. So David gets his numbers, and you can imagine his heart probably swells with some pride as he sees the nation has grown to over one million people. And he, you can just hear his thoughts like, I must be doing something right. I must be really important. I must really matter. Look at what a great leader I am because of all the people in my kingdom. Hopefully you notice a, an emphasis there. It's all on David. And suddenly, David is no longer basing his worth on how much God loves him. He forgets about God's grace and mercy in his life. All the times that God saved him from Saul, how he helped him to defeat Goliath. And that God loved and valued him while he was an unknown, nobody shepherd boy. The least significant even in his family. God loved him and valued him even then. And David forgets all of this because he chooses to define success by the world's standards rather than by God's. Guys, God doesn't care about the stuff that David was using that we use often to define success. He's bigger than all that. He has a different focus than all that. He doesn't want us to be blinded by what the world says is success because he understands and wants us to understand that that's a trap. That's a trap. And if you pull out your outlines, your first point is going to identify that trap. The danger of counting success by counting people and things is that we will forget God. The danger of counting success by counting people and things is that we will forget God. So David gets pretty consumed with the numbers here. He thinks they're really important. And I can, honestly, I can relate to this, right? Like many of you, I work for a very statistically driven organization. We have all kinds of reports and spreadsheets and all kinds of stuff that we can dig into data and get basically whatever answer we're looking for if we're trying to find something out. 
My organization's digging into this stuff called big data. I don't know what that means, but they're spending a lot of time on it, so I think it's important, this big data stuff. So we're doing that. And while all that data can be helpful, probably in the same way that, that David thought the census was going to benefit him, if we get too wrapped up in that data, too wrapped up in those numbers and start measuring our success by the numbers, those numbers will begin to make us compromise what is truly important to God. When we get in the place of putting numbers first and allowing them to define our success, how many people are following us, how much money do I have in the bank, then we forget about God and his measure of success and find ourselves in a similar place to David here in First Chronicles. Because forgetting that success is for found in God, is found in God, not in the numbers, not in dollars in the bank, not in square footage in a house. We forget that, and that sounds crazy, guys. I work for a credit union, right? My job is literally dependent on how much money we have on deposit as a financial institution. Like, the numbers in my world, they matter. So to say that like, we can't define our success, that's, like, contrary to everything I'm told at work, right? It is contrary because God has a different point of view. So as we read through this passage, we're going to see David begin to figure this out. Right, we're going to see David begin to say, yeah, maybe the numbers aren't as important as I thought they were. But by the time he gets there, by the time he comes to that place, the damage is kind of already done. He's already messed up. And after David gets the results of the census, he's informed by the prophet Gad. And this is really confusing. Gad and God. It's not like God with a Boston accent. It's a different guy. Gad, G-A-D. So the prophet Gad. <laughs> Gad, he, he tells David that God is not happy, right? And, and David gets it. He's like, oh my goodness, I messed up. I did something bad. He sinned by claiming what God had done in his life as his own victory. That's what, that was David's sin here. And he based his value on something other than God's love and faithfulness. And now he's got to find a way out. He's like, man, I messed up. How do I get out of this? And this is the conversation he's going to have with God, G-O-D, in 21 verse 8. Then David said to God, I've sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. He's like, I'm sorry, God, I messed up. Now growing up, my brothers and sisters and I, we made a lot of bad decisions, right? A lot of bad decisions, ones that usually ended up with things breaking, people crying, or like a little bit of both. <laughs> right? So, so and usually at the crisis point of something breaking or people crying or both, that was the time that all seven of us would, would look around at each other and simultaneously have the exact same thought. That wasn't a good idea. <laughs> right? Have that, that, just that moment. And then from that point on, we had to make the decision of like, are we going to try to cover this up or are we going to find a way out of this? Are we going to try to find a way to explain it away when mom and dad get home? So in verse eight, David here, he's trying to explain his way out of it and get God to just kind of brush what he did under the rug. Like, God, I know that was a bad thing that I did. I know I messed up, but like, can you just forgive me and we can move on kind of thing? I know it was a really foolish thing, but we can forget about that. Now, if you read through 1 Chronicles or, or all of the Old Testament for that matter, you'll see David isn't alone in this mistake that he's making, right? The entire nation of Israel from, from time to time and kind of progressively was doing the exact same thing. There's all kinds of indicators that prosperity and success has confused the entire nation of Israel's understanding of what this should look like. They're becoming less and less dependent on God as they see like we have been successful here. 
and they've become more and more consumed with the fruits of their own versions of success, apart from what God defines as success. So God, in this conversation, this interaction, he decides to help David and the Israelites understand how fragile, is, how fragile success is when we count heads and dollars and anything that isn't God and his influence on our lives. And what he's going to do, he's going to offer David some choices here. And I'm going to tell you what they are in a second, but I'm going to give you a warning. None of them are all that great when we look at them at face value. He gives them these choices with the end goal of being, you're going to figure this thing out and what success should look like as opposed to what you've been doing. So he comes to David. He offers David uh, these choices. They're going to help him and the the nation of Israel return to him. He says, David, these are the three three choices you have from. You can choose from three years of famine Three years of war with Israel's biggest enemies or three days, uh, or three days of pestilence or a plague, basically. Three days of, of, of a plague. And you can imagine, like, this isn't like the game show, What's Behind Door Number 3, is it? Like, there's not really a good option here. David ends up like, okay, I guess three days is better than three years. So he, he chooses option three. He chooses the three days of the plague. And in the span of that three days, 70,000 people die. 70,000 people die in three days worth of the plague because of David's action. While this, this doesn't seem like God gave David any good options, right? At face value, like that doesn't seem like three, three very good options. When we look at these, these options seem kind of downright cruel. <laughs> but we have to keep in mind that God's success looks different. He had kind of the long game in mind here, right? Yeah, it's terrible that 70,000 people had to die. But when we look at the long game, God was concerned with the long-term success of David and the long-term success of his chosen people, the nation of Israel. And sometimes we have to remember, in reading this and applying it to our lives, we have to remember that the option that we would choose isn't what's going to lead us necessarily to the life that God's, God wants for us. You know, if there was an option four of like, yeah, David, I'll just sweep it under the, the rug and it'll be fine. Would David have learned anything by that? Would David have made any type of transformation in that moment? Would the nation of Israel have had any type of transformation in in that moment? In fact, as we read on, it seems that this difficult decision that David had to make is ultimately what's going to lead him to understand what God truly wanted for him, what success truly means to God. And so let's, I just want to kind of want to read through verses 16 through 24 and finish out chapter 21. If you want to follow along, your Bibles are up on the screen. Verse 16, starting there, it says, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word of God had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Arauna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Arauna looked, and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. 
David said to him, let me have the site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at full price. Arana said to David, take it. Let my Lord, the king, do whatever pleases him. Look, I'll give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give all this. King David replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David finally, right, when he sees the angel of the Lord and it looks like the, the nation of Israel is about to be wiped off the face of the earth, he finally looks to God and says, I take full responsibility for what happened. I'm going to own up to my sin. Like, I take that on. It was me. Spare the nation of Israel, which God does. And David tells, and he tells David to build an altar, and he goes to this guy, Arana, and he insists. He says, I'm going to pay full price for this. Don't give me your livestock. Don't give me your wheat. I'm going to pay full price. I'm going to make it my offering. I'm going to do that. David could have had David could have had anything he wanted, right? He was the king. He could have definitely taken advantage of what this guy was offering. But this, in this moment, when he decides to do that, when he decides, I'm going to pay full price. I'm going to pay full price. This is where I believe that David begins to fully understand what success in God's eyes looks like. Because in David's interaction here with Arana, he, he calls something out in himself. Right, in recognition of his own disobedience, his own rebellion, his own pride and fierce independence, he understands that he, this, his real act of worship, right, if he's going to give a real act of worship, it's not going to be wrapped up in how this sacrifice looks. It's not going to be wrapped up of, okay, did I prepare the sacrifice the right way? It's not going to be dependent on him saying the right words as he makes the sacrifice, what David understands is something that I think all of us need to understand. That God just wants our sacrifice, our worship, our prayer. He wants it to be authentic. He wants us to mean it. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions. Again, it would have been easy for David to take this offer from Arana. But what David learned here is that if he took this other guy's offering, if he takes the easy way out and dresses it up nice, nice and, and offers it as, as his own, does all the right things, he would have just been going through the motions. It wouldn't have had that authenticity that God is looking for. It wouldn't have been sincere. And that's not the type of relationship that God wants with us. He wants meaningful interactions with us. He doesn't want us to just go, go through the motions. And when we do that, when we just go through the motions, what it does is it creates a gap, a gap between our actions and our intentions, right? We can come to church on Sunday morning. We can read our Bible. We can pray every day. We can do all the right things and have people, people look at us, have our head count look at us and say, look at him doing all the right things. But if our heart's not in it, if it's not a sincere act of worship to our Lord and Savior, it's not what God wants. That's not the relationship that God wants. And when that gap exists, as David found out, just saying sorry and kind of trying to sweep it under the rug, it's not enough. Our sacrifice has to mean 
something. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. It's just another verse that tells us that going through the motions is not okay with God, especially if we want our relationship with God to be one that leads us to the success that he intended for us. You know, my kids, Derek and Tyler, when they, when they do something wrong, when they wrong somebody, we always make them apologize. I'm sure most of you guys do too with your kids. You make them apologize. Now, Derek's only, or Tyler's only like two years old, right? So he doesn't fully understand like why he's apologizing. But when people look at him, they think it's adorable when he's apologizing. Because he does this thing, like he'll walk up and he'll like rub their arms and be like, sorry. Like it's adorable, but he doesn't understand what he's doing. He just knows he's supposed to do it. Now, Derek, Derek gets it. He's eight, almost eight years old, and Derek understands kind of the why behind what, why he's apologizing, right? But from time to time, Derek is 100% bought into, like, just going through the motions. Just like, I'm going to apologize because mom and dad told me I had to, and I want to get out and play, right? I want to get out of, out of trouble. So he understands what it means, but he, that doesn't mean he always does it. You know, he'll walk up to the person, especially, like, if it's Tyler, and you'll get a sorry, right? Just sorry. And when that happens, like, you know. Like, his, his, his actions aren't lining up with what his intentions should be. And in those moments, of course, like, why are you sorry, Derek? Why are you sorry? And, and have that conversation with him and use that as a meaningful moment. But the point behind all that is that God wants us to be invested in the why. God wants us to be invested in, in the why. Why are you worshiping God? Why are you coming to church on Sunday? Why are you serving him in the capacity that you are? He wants your worship. He wants our actions. He wants our prayers. He wants our praise. He wants all that, but he wants it to mean something. It can't be empty, shallow praise. He wants it to be sincere. He doesn't care how many heads we can count around us that see us going through the motion. He wants us. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you. And this is what David would write in Psalm 40 to remind us of what God really wants here. In Psalm 40, verses 6 and 8, he says, You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you've made me listen, I finally understand you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. I take joy in doing your will. My God, for your instructions are written on my heart. And that's going to take us to a place where we can kind of wrap things up this morning by saying that in a nutshell, your second point, success is not found in numbers, but in obedience and surrender. God desires our obedience, not our success. Success is found in numbers, not found in numbers, but in obedience and surrender. God desires our obedience, not our success. So each and every one of us, and I'm, I'm including myself in this, all of us has a gap, right, has that gap between our intentions and our actions that we need to address with God. And we, it's up to each of us to look up to God and ask him to help us bridge that gap between what we view as success, the things that we count, our money, our position, our social media likes, our empty sacrifices, bridge the gap between those things and what God views as success. Obedience and an authentic and sincere relationship with our loving, beautiful Savior. That's how God defines success. And we have to kind of figure out that gap and how to bridge it. 
That's a gap that, like, if we're honest, right, that's a gap that isn't foreign to any of us. All of us know that that exists. All of us can right now, in a, in a quiet moment, an honest moment, can point to, like, yeah, that's part of that gap. And look to God to help you bridge it. It's a conversation we have to have with God. But I also want to address the fact that some of us this morning, some of us this morning are probably feeling something right now when it comes to this stuff. Maybe, maybe a little bit of guilt, feeling like that gap is just, it's too big for me to overcome. It's too far, I've shown too far from God that he can't even bridge that gap. But I want to encourage you to learn from the example of David this morning. Learn from the example of David. And I said at the beginning, I love David because he's so relatable to all of us, especially when he sins, right? When he messes up, when he does stuff that doesn't make God happy, like, yeah, we can relate to that because we do it. When he goes against what God would want from him, we can relate because we've all been there. And some of us, even right now, are feeling a little bit of that. Like, I've, I've, I've gone away from what God's best for me is. I've gone away from what God, God's plan of success for me, what that looks like. And we're guilty of basking in our own success rather than humbling ourselves before God, humbling ourselves before our Savior. But I believe what, what we can apply from David's example in all the stories that we've talked about through this entire series is that in spite of everything that David had going on, in spite of all the mess-ups that he had, and you can count them, right? Bathsheba, like all of them. In spite of all of that, he kept coming back to God. I, don't, I can't think of a time where he, he got to a place where it was just like, I just can't go to God with this. The gap's too big. I can't bridge it. He keeps coming back to God. And when, when we are going to get so wrapped up in our success that we forget about God, because that's what ultimately happens when we do this, and what David's cautioning here and God's cautioning us against, don't get so wrapped up in your own success that you forget about God. What we can learn from David is not to shut God out in those times. Not to shut him out or worse, go through the motions like your relationship with God is great. But deep down inside, you know like there's a gap. There's a struggle. I'm going through the motions. David teaches us to keep coming back to God. Have an authentic conversation with him. Worship him in a way that's sincere and meaningful. Ask him questions. I have four questions here that I, th I think will go a long way in kind of bridging that gap and helping you understand, like, am I defining success in the right way? One, am I being faithful to my calling? Am I being faithful to my calling? Two, am I fruitful in my life and ministry? Three, am I fulfilled by the measure of my obedience. And four, am I making God famous through my life? If you have the, that conversation with God, you're gonna, in an authentic way, you're gonna come away from that truly knowing what God's success looks like. And as we kind of wrap things up this morning and move into a time of response, I want to invite you into a, into a place, into a space. It's okay to be open with God. It's okay to be authentic with God. It's okay to, God, to say, God, look, I have this gap and I know that it's there and I need you to help me bridge that gap. Some of you, God, I just, I don't have the strength. I need you to bridge it for me. 
It's okay to have that conversation with God. God, I've really, I've just been going through the motions. My worship, my prayers, my relationship with you. God, I want it to mean something. Maybe you want to engage God in those questions on the screen. Or maybe you want to write something on your response card this morning and let us know as a church family, how can we pray for you? As you humbly seek God in a meaningful way. Whatever your response is this morning, however you want to respond to God in terms of that gap, in terms of, of what your relationship, your authentic relationship looks like. Whatever your response is, God is going to accept your offering of obedience as long as it means something. As long as you're sincere and you are sincerely looking to deepen your relationship with him. If that's you this morning and you want to respond in that way, I want to encourage you. You are well on your way to finding the success that God wants let me pray for you. Father God, success, it's an interesting concept, an interesting word. It's one that has a lot of different meanings depending on who you ask. But God, our prayer this morning is that you help us to understand what you, how you define success. And that you help us to bridge the gap between what the world and what we at times define as success and what you, how you view that word. We want our worship. We want our praise. We want our prayers. We want our relationship with you to be authentic. We want it to mean In this moment, Jesus, we want to be open with you. We want you, we invite you to speak into our hearts. As we enter into this time of response. Help each and every one of us to be sincere. Authentically seek. Love you. In Jesus' name.